Rachel here with your radio sisters, Bo and Allie, and we've been waiting all week. It's time for the Mulberry Lane Show. That's right, Rachel, and guys, so glad you've joined us here. All the heart emojis out to you for hanging out right now here with us. Yes, we promise the next hour we'll have you feeling good about where you've been and even better about where you're going. Mm -hmm. Yes to that. So we got a question for you. What is stopping you? Seriously, what's stopping you from going after that dream, from chasing that side hustle, living with that electric energy that comes from following your passion? Well, we've got a few answers for you. The guest stopping by today will help you change that stuck mindset. Even if you've been feeling overwhelmed by responsibility or burned out by your nine to five, these guests are going to help change that and change your red light to green so you feel the energy to go after what makes your heart sing. Woo! Can I get an amen? Amen! <laughs> okay, well, let's get to the guests, sisters. Let's do it, Bo. The Mulberry Lane show's on. Celebrity story songs. You're gonna have it going on when we tell you who's stopping by now. 48 million albums in four Grammy Awards. These guys brought you these songs. Oh, black water, keep on And so many others. And yes, guys, that's the Doobie Brothers. Now, Tom Johnston, songwriter, guitarist, co-founder, and lead singer of the band, joins your weekend to tell you all about the enduring music and the stories of the Doobie Brothers. Mm-hmm, Rachel, who's next? Well, next up, you're going to meet number one New York Times best-selling author, Rick Riordan. Now, I'm pretty sure you've heard of Rick. There are over 100 million copies of his books in print. And if you haven't heard of him, then your middle schooler has. He is the author and the creator of the Percy Jackson book series, and today he's here to chat the latest book, The Tyrant's Tomb, in the latest best-selling series, The Trials of Apollo. Now, Rick talks about how he crafted this unique position for himself in the world of writing. Rick's also going to give his best advice on when to make your side hustle your main dish. Mm-hmm, good stuff there. All right, guys, and then it's Dr. Barbara Bruce giving you an update on all things fibromyalgia. Now, she's from the Mayo Clinic. There's brand new research that's come out. There's a whole book about it. It's called The Mayo Clinic Guide to Fibromyalgia, Strategies to Take Your Life Back. And Barbara's going to share some of those strategies with you today. So stay tuned for that a little bit later on in the show. Mm-hmm. Your radio sisters are not only here to keep your creative dreams alive, we also want to keep you in your best health while doing it. Absolutely. All right, before we get to it, Allie, you had to sew up some loose ends this week. Indeed, I did, sisters. We had an interview scheduled at 9 a.m. on Monday. I was trying to get the kids ready, trying to get ready for the interview and be on time to meet Rachel at the studio. I had about 15 minutes before I needed to leave the house, and Dave hadn't left for work yet. He found me, and he was like, hey, Allie, uh, do you know where a sewing kit is? And I was like, well, why do you need a sewing kit? And he said, well, you know, I wore my work pants over the weekend, so I can't wear those. And my backup pair, they ripped. There's a big four-inch hole, and I need to sew it up. I was like, Dave, you know, I have to leave in like 15 minutes. I don't know if I have time to do that. And he goes, oh, I totally can do it. And I go, you know how to sew? And he goes, I've watched enough medical shows. I know how to stitch things up. (laughs) I go, Dave, really? 
Really? So I found him the sewing kit. He went in the other room. And then about two minutes later, he comes in. And he's like, um, Allie, can you uh, thread the needle for me? I was like, Dave, really? So I quickly threaded the needle. And I said to him, so you know how you're supposed to knot it at the end so things don't unravel, right, when you sew it up? He goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. I was like, okay, Dave, hand the pants over. I will do this super quick and get it done. I did it. I got the kids together, got the stuff ready for the interview, made it out the door on time to meet Rachel in the studio. Allie, Dave played you on that. (laughs) He was definitely gunning for you to sew his pants. I was fully aware. All I can say is it's good we have all that experience sewing those Barbie clothes growing up. Exactly. But I never sewed for Ken. (laughs) Still aren't. (laughs) Okay, well, right after the break, we'll be right back with Tom Johnson of the Doobie Brothers. Keep it right here with your radio sisters. We'll meet you back here on the Mulberry Lane Show right around the corner. I'm Bo, here with my sisters, Rachel and Allie. This segment is brought to you by Braddock Finnegan Dermatology, advanced comprehensive medical, surgical, and cosmetic dermatologic care. BraddockFinnegan.com. Find the harmony right here on the Mulberry Lane Show. I'm Rachel, along with your radio sisters, Bo and Allie. Welcome back. Well, the Doobie Brothers have sold over 48 million albums, have four Grammy Awards, and you know them from the classics such as Blackwater, What a Fool Believes, and Listen to the Music, among so many others. Now, Tom Johnston, songwriter, guitarist, co-founder, and lead singer of the band, joins your weekend to chat the tour coming through the heartland and the enduring music of the Doobie Brothers. Welcome, welcome to the show, Tom Johnston. Thank you very much. Good to see you. I hear you. (laughs) Yeah, it's so good to have you on the show. So now, what has this tour been like, and what can people expect from the stops along the way? It's been a great tour so far. We've been touring, actually, since June, with a small break after we were out with Santana for a couple of months. Okay. And then we've been out on our own since beginning of September. Okay. It's kind of a blur, anyway. uh, I bet. It's been going very well, and the crowds have been great. Multi-generations in the crowds. That's got to be so gratifying to see, you know, the music live on through generations. It is. We enjoy seeing all the regulars, if you will, and then also kids in their teens and 20s and stuff like that. It's it's nice to know that it's not always the parents passing it down. The kids actually enjoy the music from, you know, finding it they on their own. They find it, too, yeah. You guys are constantly working on new music. So how do you work it so that, you know, you can give everybody the hits they want to hear, but yet be able to indulge yourselves with the new music? Is there time? Well, actually, right now we are playing music that everybody would know all the way okay. through. Well, I mean, some of it's deep cuts, and they may not okay. know it. But we have a huge catalog of songs. We have a whole EP cut and ready to go, but it won't be out until the beginning of this next year. Of so, 2020, okay. Yeah. And it's all brand new stuff, and it's kind of different for the band, too, so I'm looking forward to seeing what this does. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not like anything we've actually ever done before. It's pretty different, and that's what it's all about. There's nothing worse than going out and making new music that isn't new. That's something we've stayed away from on pretty much all our projects. Uh Now, one thing I think, like you said, is so unique about the Doobie Brothers, you know, because members have come and gone. Other members have joined, Michael McDonald, among others. You know, as a band, how were you able to make creative space for another person without, you know, compromising the sound or image of the band. And, you know, the fans embraced it, too. I don't think that's an easy thing to do. Well, I'll be honest with you. When Michael came along, it was during a time when I had to leave the band for a while due to a um, 
stomach ulcer, and okay. the music changed drastically, actually. Uh-huh. And it was still great music. It was just a different kind of music. And yeah. it did very well. It kept the name of the band going, and very grateful to Michael for all that he brought to the band. You know, he's a fun guy to hang around. He's good people. And I went back and toured with him on the spring tour of that year for that album, which was Taking It to the Streets. Uh-huh. And then I left the band in 77 to pursue solo stuff. Did a couple albums that way. And then the band broke up in 82. But during that time period, they had a lot of success. And developed, I guess you would call it a different following, very different style of music from what we've been playing. And then in 87, we got back together to do a benefit for Vietnam vets. Credit Keith Knudsen for getting us all together. He was okay. one of the drummers in the band. And uh, in 89, we started back up with another album and we haven't quit since. So it's back to the original format, if you will. Yeah, came full circle. So now I want to ask you about that time when you were dealing with your health issues and the band goes on without you. Was that mentally difficult for you, you know, and seeing that the band was successful? How did you process all that at that time? I didn't really think of it a lot. I mean, I was around the guys every now and again, and I was happy for the success. I thought it was great. And we'd already worked very solidly for like six years. We were on the road for over 200 gigs a year and doing an album every year. So it was just a switch, and then, you know, I was still doing music. I was just not doing it with a band. But I would still see him once in a while. I would go to a show or something and sit in. It was a good thing to see. It was different. It was a little strange to get used to. But at the same time, it was kind of nice to take a break. And then when we got back together, which was actually really only five years after the band broke up, but he did a farewell tour, and I joined him on the last show in Berkeley, California. And it was good to see everybody, to get up and play with them, you know. Did it fall uh, back into place just like it used to? Yeah, playing the songs. Yeah, yeah. they don't go away. Yeah. It's just like you never left or something. Uh-huh. And then would you say that the two <coughs> two sets of fan bases, they've kind of merged now, I imagine? They kind of have, yeah. Something goes up on Facebook nowadays concerning a time period picture uh-huh. or an album, and you get to read all the comments. I don't have a Facebook myself. I'm just not into doing all that. Uh-huh. But we do have a business for the band. It's the band's Facebook. Uh-huh. And it's interesting to read how people react to that whole situation. Some people react very strongly. Other people are pretty cool about it. Uh-huh. Yeah. I and they fall on either side. You never know. Uh-huh. And it's probably unique for you to see it at this point in time, too, how people take yeah, it. Yeah, it is, because we've been doing this again for 30 years straight. Uh-huh. And it's interesting to read, but at the same time, I don't dwell on it. Right. Guys, Tom Johnston, Doobie Brothers, right here on the Mulberry Lane Show. So now you're guitar playing. How did you kind of hit on and develop your unique style? Are you talking about rhythm? Yeah. Um, You know, I grew up playing blues and rhythm and blues, soul music, as well as rock and roll. But Uh uh, there's a lot of the others in my repertoire, if you will, and that's what I grew up listening to. I think a lot of it came from that, and then the rest of it was brought about by playing a lot of acoustic when I moved up to San Jose. Okay. And I went to college, and I would spend hours playing acoustic guitar, and it was just a way of playing. If you were writing a song for us, you wanted to write a song, and you had this great rhythm idea for the song, but you didn't have a drummer, Mm because it was just you and acoustic guitar, so I would played in such a way that you kind of had the drums built into the way you played, the way you would strike the strings. I mean, would you just sit with your guitar for hours to figure that out? Yeah, I did for a period in there. Yeah. I didn't do it forever. But I played a lot of acoustic. I played electric as well, obviously. Uh-huh. But right. That was just a strong writing period, and it was also a time when I put that kind of rhythm style to use a lot. 
listen to music, long train run, another park, another Sunday. Do you think that was one of the things that really informed the Doobie Brothers sound? Yeah, I think it was one of them. I think the other part of it is Pat Simmons' finger-picking. I think that over the top of that kind of rhythm gave us a sound that nobody else was doing, even though it wasn't intentional, yeah. just the way it ended up being, and it worked really well. And then the harmonies. And then the harmonies, yes. exactly. So was that something you guys worked on, or did it just work so well naturally, just the way it came For together? whatever reason, we just thought that way. And so if we wrote a song, we came up with all the chord changes, and sometimes most of the lyrics anyway, <laughs> um, we would always come up with the harmonies, like, the next thing you would do is come up with a harmony. It was built in. And once again, this band's never done anything, I want to say, on purpose. It just sort of happens. Organically, yeah. Yeah. And the harmonies, I think, came from listening to a lot of different people. I think one of the bands that affected this band a lot way back in the beginning was Moby Grape. They had a lot of harmonies. And so okay. did several other bands at that time. But it just seemed like it belonged there, and we needed that. So we mm-hmm. always put them in. Almost part of the writing process. Yeah, absolutely. And then did you record harmonies together at that point, or did you go in individually? Sometimes we would do them two guys at a time and then add a third. Another time we'd do all three at a time. Uh, if they were a round kind of thing, like on uh, Blackwater or something like that, mm-hmm. you'd have several guys singing, but not all at once usually. Like okay. two guys would do a layer, another couple of guys would do another layer, and it would get a little more complex. The rest okay. of the time it was usually three-part harmonies. Sometimes, too. You know, we love this harmony talk, but we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more from Tom Johnston of the Doobie Brothers right after this. And in case you forgot, you're listening to the Mulberry Lane Show. And right now, as you hear Blackwater, you can almost feel that you're in the studio. What Tom was describing when the guys go in two by two and layer in the harmonies like this. By the hand, by the hand, by the hand, take me by the hand, pretty mama, come and dance with your daddy all night long. I'd like to hear some funky Dixieland, pretty mama, come and take me by the hand, by the hand, take me by the hand, pretty mama, come and dance with your daddy all night long. I'd like to hear some funky Dixieland. Well, Dr. Mary Finnegan of Braddock Finnegan Dermatology is here to tell you about Aqua Gold. So, Aqua Gold is a small vial that has small stainless steel needles that are finer than a human hair in which we can leave product in the surface of the skin. The procedure takes about 15 minutes for the whole face. It gives a very dewy look, an airbrushed look. There's mild redness, otherwise no downtime at all. Aqua Gold at Braddock Finnegan Dermatology. That's braddockfinnegan.com. Your creative fueling station, the Mulberry Lane Show. Glad you're here with us. I'm Bo, here with my sisters, Rachel and Allie. If you're just tuning in in the middle of a chat with Tom Johnston of the Doobie Brothers, chatting all about the tour and some behind the scenes and behind the song stories. Let's get back right now with Tom Johnston. We have to talk about your daughter, Laura Johnston. Now, she's a singer-songwriter. She was on American Idol a completely different path than you took. So what do you think of the music industry now, her path, what she's up to, and where music is now? Music has changed. We kind of fell into the business backwards. We didn't have connections. We didn't have this, that, and the next thing. And music back then was all about you toured to support the record. Mm-hmm. It's the exact opposite. Right. Now. Nowadays, you're out on the road, and you make music, an album, EP, whatever, to support the tours you're doing. The styles of music have changed drastically from then. The uh-huh. way they do business has changed. The way the record companies do business has 
interesting. Yeah. A lot of the stuff they used to do was almost like being a manager. It's almost mm-hmm. like they managed you. Nowadays, it's not that way. Your manager is definitely the guy that does all that stuff. The artwork and the rest of it is taken care of by the record companies, but it's not as important because if it's streaming, nobody's right. going to see Nobody it anyway. Sees it. <laughs> You're not sitting there holding something in your hand that you can read or look at the pictures or whatever anymore. Uh-huh. So what's the number one piece of advice you've given your daughter? Besides practicing, which is something I give myself and anybody else, is that always stay on top of your game. Practice as much as you can. Same with writing. Write as much as you can. Uh, just stay with it. It's way harder now than it was then, and it wasn't easy then. There's so many people trying to get in the door. Yeah. What used to be a regular-sized door, theoretical, not hypothetical. <laughs> we got through the door with a regular-sized door. And there was probably you know, 200 people trying to get through that door, let's say. Nowadays, it's about the size of a postage stamp, and there's about a million people trying to get through there. Yeah, that's a really good <laughs> analogy, <laughs> analogy, seriously. So the competition is, is insane. And it seems and like music is almost the smallest part of the industry now. More about the business of it? Yeah, you know? more about the business and the promotion and, and the, the social media and, and the marketing and the music is almost it's the not, afterthought. It's not built to sustain an artist the way it used to be. Yeah. And the music reflects that, unfortunately. Like, if you're around for a week and a big deal for a week or even a month, except for a few artists, then you succeeded in their eyes mm-hmm. for the record company. And then they want another they want another song. They don't stay with them like they used to, and they don't stay with groups like they used to, unless they are extremely, I call it lucky, because to me a lot of it is luck. They don't have people around for years. That just doesn't happen. It seems like it's a lot more niche marketing, too, like you know smaller audiences and more tailored and more fragmented audiences yeah you've got festival groups you've got pop you've got hot ac triple a americana satellite radio and of course streaming so now do you look at this and you say oh i'm so glad we came out when we did actually yes i do (laughs) (laughs) i bet you do very grateful that we came out when we did because we were extremely fortunate we weren't trying to be a big deal we just sort of ended up doing it yeah. We just did it because we love to play music. That was the only reason we were playing. We Which is the reason people should do it. It should be for the love of it and for the artistry of it. Yeah, a lot of people who get into the business now are in it to make money. And uh-huh. if you're just in it to make money, then you're forgetting about the reason you were doing this in the first place. And that's the wrong reason to do right, it. Right, right. Or a lot of people are also in it just to be famous any way they can. <laughs> yeah, same thing. Yeah, it, it, well, those are both equally, I yes. guess, important. Yeah. But that's why they don't last. Because yeah. you don't have a basis for you. what you're doing should be the quality of the music and, and uh, sending out a message, if you will, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. or a storyline or whatever it is. Yeah. Something that people can hang on to, and that's one of the things that I get to hear on a regular basis. People coming up to you and say, thank you so much, I've been listening to your music for X amount of years, or I did this, this, and this in my life, and your music was part of that in yeah. the background. Or, you mm-hmm. know. That's that's a big deal. It um, is. And we were extremely lucky to write songs that people could do that with. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us here, you're listening to Tom Johnston, co-founder of iconic band The Doobie Brothers, right here on the Mulberry Lane Show. You know, as we were just talking, it's so fragmented now, but you guys were at a time when... As you said, there weren't all the people trying to make it through the door. So when you got through the door, you know, you could be huge and have the huge success. So how did you keep yourself grounded during that time? (laughs) (laughs) I have to laugh. You do get crazy. 
<clears throat> I'm not going to tell you you don't. Okay. Because you're not at home, ever. And, yeah. you know, none of us were married or anything. But it's a pretty wild and crazy atmosphere. You go from playing clubs and pizza parlors and whatever the hell. You play anywhere you can. So all of a sudden you're in these big arenas and you're playing five nights a week. Then you're traveling in between each town. It's a drastic change. And everybody and loves you and wants a piece of you. And Yeah, it's, it's really hard to do that and maintain this grounded, you know, totally sane outlook on life because things get really crazy real fast. Yeah. So then how did you recover? Or have you? Well, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, depending on how you look at it, my stomach decided it wasn't very happy with the whole situation. Right. And um, so I had to stay away from it for a while. And... You stay away from it, and you go back to it, and you start getting a better perspective on what the whole thing's all about. And then when I went off to do the solo albums, it was really just like doing it with a band. You know, you were touring, and, and it was the same atmosphere. But then after the two solo albums, and the same for the band breaking up in 82, everybody just kind of stood back. I, mean, I played baseball for a couple of years after I left the band, not professional baseball or anything, but um, I just lifted weights. I hung out, played music a little, but not a lot, and then later started drifting back to the music, later being like six to eight months, okay. <laughs> and then started doing a solo album, and it's just, the music never leaves, it's always yeah. there, but at the same time, when you get away from it for a while, you start to appreciate a lot of things, your health for one, yeah. uh, your sanity for another. <laughs> uh, and how you look at life. I mean, what do you want to do with your life? I mean, where do you want to go? And it never changed from the musical point of it. Music was always part of it. I can't imagine yeah. not being a musician. I don't know what else I would do. Mm -hmm. Being a graphic designer, which is what I went to college for, would have been just a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> I would have starved. It's kind of like I can't imagine not having music in my life. And I'm sure everybody else in the band feels the same way. Yeah, and again, it's that love of music that comes through everything, which I think is such an important ingredient that sometimes is missing in music today. Yeah, I'm afraid it is. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to be a musician, it seems like that should be the absolute main thing that you're involved with and interested in and why you're doing it. If people are doing it just, as you said, to get attention and or, as I said, make money and or both, uh, I think they missed it. Yeah. Yeah. They definitely missed the joy of it. Yeah. If you get all hung up doing beats and tuning your voice and doing all those kinds of things that are very prevalent nowadays as opposed to really developing a voice and developing a playing style mm -hmm. and a songwriting style, then it's kind of like... Why are you making music? And I'm, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just saying, if you're going to be a musician, if you're going to be a singer, then that's what it should really all be about. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Well, Tom, we want to thank you so much for joining the show. It's so lovely to get your thoughts on the industry and your history and, of course, the amazing music. And it sounds like you're going to be coming out with an album in 2020, so we'd love if you would stop back and chat with us again. I would love to. It's Tom Johnston of the Doobie Brothers. Well, if you've got a middle schooler, you're going to want to hear from this next guy. Number one New York Times bestselling author of the Percy Jackson series, Rick Riordan, is coming up next right here on the Mulberry Lane Show, your hub of creative inspiration.
Hey, it's Allie here with the Mulberry Lane Show. And did you know you can be a part of our free email list every week where you'll get more sister fun, links to archived radio shows, tips on creativity for your life, and real connection. All you have to do is text the word Mulberry to the number 22828, and then you enter in your email. So join the free Mulberry Lane email newsletter, and we'll land in your inbox once a week. Text the word Mulberry to 22828. We've got you covered. Back to the Mulberry Lane Show. It's Rachel here with your radio sisters, Bo and Allie. Unless you've been living under a rock, you no doubt are familiar with the book series Percy Jackson. Well, the superstar author of the series, Rick Riordan, is here to chat the latest book, The Tyrant's Tomb, in the latest best-selling series, The Trials of Apollo. And guys, just for context, there's over 100 million copies of his books in print. His last books all debuted on the New York Times bestseller list at number one. So we're not kidding with the superstar author label. Welcome, welcome to the show, Rick Riordan. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's so awesome to have you on the show. So The Tyrant's Tomb is the fourth in this series. First set up the book for us. Well, The Trials of Apollo is basically set in Percy Jackson's world, but it's from the point of view of the god of music, which I'm sure you'd appreciate, Apollo. Okay. The twist, however, is that Apollo has been sentenced by his father to become a mortal because of crimes that Apollo has supposedly committed. So he's basically been been grounded. He's turned into a (laughs) 16-year-old kid with no powers. And I think that's something a lot of young readers have related to, being unfairly punished for something. Absolutely. And so he's got to go through all these quests to try to get back into his dad's good graces and become a god again. Okay. So now in The Tyrant's Tomb, what's he up against? Oh, boy. The Tyrant's Tomb, I mean, we're four books in, so things are really getting heated for poor Apollo. He is heading to the San Francisco Bay Area to visit the Roman demigods at Camp Jupiter. Uh, He's hoping for a nice, restful vacation. Unfortunately, the camp is being attacked by a couple of evil Roman emperors. There are some zombies involved, some other horrible monsters. And so it's going to turn into this huge battle, and Apollo has to somehow figure out how to survive. Okay. Going back to the Percy Jackson series, talk a little bit about how the Percy Jackson character was developed and, and where it all came from. Well, sure. I mean, I was a middle school teacher for many years, and so I I love telling stories for that age group. I also love mythology. I always have, and I loved teaching it. I never really got the idea to write a story based on it, however, until my own son was about eight years old, and he was diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD and was having a really tough time in school. So I started telling him bedtime stories, and one night off the top of my head, I told him this story about a a hero named Percy Jackson, who is dyslexic and ADHD like him, and finds out that those learning differences are a pretty good indicator that you're a demigod. And that completely changed my son's understanding of who he was and what these learning differences meant. So here we are 14 books later, and apparently it's resonated with a lot of readers around the world. Now, it's so interesting because Percy Jackson had ADHD and dyslexia before it really was, you know, acknowledged and kind of became a thing. So do you feel like the books really spoke into the culture and brought it more mainstream? I hope so. I wouldn't say that, of course, it's the only thing that's changed, but it certainly was part of the evolution of our understanding of what learning differences mean. Mm-hmm. And 
their sort of acceptability, and understanding that these are not just kids who don't want to work. It's not just that these kids are lazy. It's that they learn in a different way. And if you are willing to sort of meet them halfway, teach in a way that they can really get the information from, they can excel just as much as any other student or maybe more. So now as a teacher, having a son with ADHD and dyslexia, did that change you as a teacher? Yes, of course. I mean, it was impossible for it not to. I mean, I had, of course, worked with kids with various learning differences for many years Uh and always tried to do the best I could for them. But it's a much more personal struggle, obviously, when Mm -hmm. you're a parent and you're watching your son or your daughter work through these issues. And it's it's just heartbreaking sometimes to hear the struggles that they're going through. Mm -hmm. So it made me, I hope, more compassionate and more empathetic for what these kids go through. And then, you know, you could even put all of that into the characters or scenes in the book as well. You know, just the struggles and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. And Mm -hmm. really a lot of the heroes' adventures that the Percy Jackson crew go through, and even Apollo, are versions, sort of symbols of the kind of struggles that most middle schoolers go through in their career. Uh Well, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Rick Riordan, number one New York Times bestselling author of the book series Percy Jackson, talking about his latest series, The Trial of Apollo, the fourth book, The Tyrant's Tomb, right here on the Mulberry Lane Show. I read that the Percy Jackson character is somewhat based on your son, but also, you know, you put pieces of different students into it. So do you think that close connection with the middle school students, you were really able to speak right into their lives with this book? Well, I certainly hope so. And I think to the degree that the books have been successful, I think that's a large part of it, that I know that audience. I'm no longer a teacher, but Uh I can still have their faces in my imagination. I imagine reading it to them, say, fifth period after lunch, when their attention is really wandering. And I try to make it engaging enough that I can keep them interested even then. You know, in what you're saying right now, I think is so relevant because as creatives, it's so important when you know your audience or who you're writing for. And, you know, that just naturally kind of came with your territory because you knew your students so well, you were really able to apply these books to what they were going through. Yeah, that's the hope. uh, Mo Willems, the author of so many great books, said it very well once. He said, uh, always think of your reader, never think for your reader. So you want to be mindful of them. You want to be considerate of them and know who you're writing for. But you also don't want to spoon feed them and you don't want to talk down to them. Right. Yeah. So now as a creative and as a teacher, and then you had this, you know, this writing thing going on. Was that a difficult decision when you decided to leave teaching, or was it at that point easy to do? It really was difficult for me to leave teaching. I loved the classroom. I still have dreams. Every August, I'll wake up in a panic that I haven't done my lesson plan. (laughs) Never goes away. I loved being a teacher, but I I consoled myself with the fact that I I sort of still am a teacher. It's just that I have millions of kids in my classroom, and I don't have to grade their papers. Right. You're now showing up in millions of classrooms. (laughs) (laughs) And hopefully it's making kids excited about reading, and that's all I can ask. Yeah, so then a lot of creatives, you know, they start with a side hustle, and they have their regular job. If you had to advise someone on when is the time to put all your efforts into the side hustle and make that your main thing? Well, I know that there's never a perfect time to do it. It really is sort of your own tolerance for how much risk you're willing to take and where you are in your life. There's so many factors. For me, it was a conversation I had to have with my wife and think about my kids 
and think about my own sanity and sort of where do I need to go, where do I need to apply myself, and what's my backup plan in case it doesn't work out. Okay. Was that a scary time for you? Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. There was no guarantee at all that the Percy Jackson series would take off. It took a lot of years, even after The Lightning Thief came out, before we started to build steam. So the overnight success syndrome, you know, as, as most of us know who are in some sort of creative field, there's no such thing. There are no overnight successes. They're just, you're not aware of all the toil, perhaps, that the person's been putting in, all the hours they've been logging until they get that breakthrough. Okay, so now what would surprise people, like the one thing that you had to spend an exorbitant amount of time on that you never thought you would have to when you were in the planning stages? Oh, goodness. Uh, I think traveling is the big thing. Just on my own dime, setting up school visits, doing a lot of presentations all around the country. For me, fortunately, as a teacher, that wasn't that hard. Right. But the amount of promotion that you have to do as a writer, and a lot of writers are introverts, too. It can be quite a shock how much you have to interact and present and be a PR manager for yourself, basically. Uh Uh-huh, right. Being a teacher, being in front of a classroom, that was probably part of it that really came easy for you. Uh, Yeah, I had a leg up in that for sure. I'm quite used to being in front of large groups of kids. That does not scare me. Uh, (laughs) You know, whether they'll pick up the book or not and whether they'll like it, yes. That's always still, you know, a worry of mine, that maybe this time they won't like it. But they always come back. (laughs) All right. Well, Rick, we want to thank you so much for joining the show. Enjoyed the interview, and we'll be reading. Thank you so much. New York Times number one best-selling author Rick Riordan here on the Mulberry Lane Show. Be sure to pick up The Tyrant's Tomb, the fourth installment of the series, The Trials of Apollo. Keep it right here with your radio sisters on the Mulberry Lane Show. Guys, Rachel here. Just want to give you a personal invitation to get in on more sister fun music and highlights from the radio show. You can head on over to our socials, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, The Mulberry Lane Show. We love having you here, and we'd love to meet you over there for more positivity, creativity, and true connection. It's your weekend getaway, guys. You're hanging out here on the Mulberry Lane Show. It's Allie along with your radio sisters, Rachel and Bo. Glad you're here with us. Well, if you or someone you know has fibromyalgia, you guys need to pull up a chair. Fibromyalgia affects over 10 million people in the U.S., with up to 90% of those affected being women. Now, Dr. Barbara Bruce, clinical psychologist at the Mayo Clinic, is stopping by your weekend to dispel the myths and offer some tips about fibromyalgia. Then you guys can pick up the book, Mayo Clinic Guide to Fibromyalgia, Strategies to Take Back Your Life. Welcome Welcome to the show, Dr. Barbara Bruce. Thank you very much. (laughs) Good to have you with us. Okay, so first we have to know what exactly is fibromyalgia? It's a chronic disorder that seems to cause severe pain and fatigue in patients. My patients tell me that they feel like they wake up every morning with the flu. They feel achy. They feel sore, they feel exhausted, they don't sleep well, they feel like they can't think. Okay. Do we know what causes it, or what's the latest research? Well, the latest science is telling us that something's wrong in the central nervous system, and in particular the sensory system, that seems to be causing all of these different physical symptoms. And I think one of the confusing things is that some of these symptoms can also be 
caused by other disorders. So if someone is having these symptoms, is it best to first start off at your primary care doctor? Absolutely. And actually in the book, what we do is we try to lay out a guide for patients who suspect that they may have fibromyalgia, and it really allows them to take that information to their primary care physician to begin that really very important step of getting an accurate diagnosis. That's great, because I think one of the hard things about it is it's so confusing. It is confusing. Uh And patients are confused. My patients have had symptoms on average 10 years before they're diagnosed. So now, what are some treatment options? What's out there to help, you know, get people back into their life? Well, the most important thing, I think, is to understand what is and is not happening to them. My patients are often very terrified that they've got another much more serious disorder. And so I think that that accurate diagnosis and arming themselves with information about what we do know about fibromyalgia, which is a lot. And knowledge is power, really. Absolutely. So that because, again, the central nervous system is activated. Stress is not a friend to this disorder, not that it's a friend to any of us, but it absolutely fires up this central sensitization. To know and to understand what is and is not wrong, I think, can help people to be able to get grounded and be able to march forward in a way that's going to help them to feel better. 100%. Well, if you guys are just tuning in, you're listening to Dr. Barbara Bruce from the Mayo Clinic talking all about fibromyalgia. Specific things for managing pain or, like you said, that severe exhaustion. We talk about things like the way people think. We talk about the way that people tend to isolate themselves when they don't feel well, that we want them to regain their social network. We want them to reconnect with the people that they love. We want them to start to engage in the activities that give them pleasure and passion. The more that we pull away and focus on the symptoms and the worry, the worse my patients feel. Okay. Oh, that's so interesting. So it's really almost training the brain to think differently. Absolutely. Anything that they can do to manage that stress differently through yoga, meditation, different kinds of relaxation strategies are important. And we also want to help patients to be able to sleep better and getting moving again. Do you suggest that they tell a lot of people that they are suffering from this or is it just individual patient dependent? You know, that's such an excellent question because often my patients feel isolated and misunderstood. So I encourage my patients to talk to the people that they love and tell them what they're learning about fibromyalgia and that it is real and that their symptoms are not in their head and that there are strategies that can make them feel better and ask those people that they love how they want to be supported. So important. And and so important in any illness that one might have. Absolutely, yeah. Love that. And we love the series of Mayo books that you all put out because it's so helpful to so many of us who, you know, are not living close to the Mayo Clinic. Well, thank you. And that was really the reason to put it in a book because a lot of people will never get to the Mayo Clinic, but we want them to have accurate information and tools that can help them feel better. Love that. Well, thank you, Dr. Barbara Bruce. And you can pick up the Mayo Clinic Guide to Fibromyalgia, Strategies to Take Back Your Life. Thank you very much. Okay, guys, it's time for our favorite part of the show. This is show notes. Mm -hmm. Now, show notes are our hand-picked advice from our guests that we've selected for your life. So listen up. You might just want to take this into your week with you. Well, up first, you heard from Tom Johnston of the Doobie Brothers. Tom talked all about perspective. He says, you know, in the wild and crazy days of the Doobie Brothers, he got caught up in all sorts of things. When he took a step away because of his health issues, he was able to gain perspective. He played some baseball, took up some other 
other hobbies and then when he went back to it he was able to see it in a much healthier way a way that brought back his sanity so if you're too caught up in what you're doing or too close to it remember it's so good to take a break get that perspective you can go back at it in a much healthier way with renewed energy so great advice from Tom today. Well, then next up on the show, you heard from number one New York Times bestselling author Rick Riordan, who is, of course, most famous for the Percy Jackson series. Now, he talked about jumping from your regular nine to five to making your side hustle your main thing. He said this is such a personal decision, and it depends on where you are in your life and how much risk you're willing to take. For him, he had to think about his wife and kids and his sanity. And you guys, he was terrified because he said there was no guarantee at all that the Percy Jackson series would be successful. He said there's no such thing as the overnight success. And he added, you'd be surprised at the amount of promo you have to do as a writer. You basically have to be a PR manager for yourself. And this is so true in any industry. Not only do you have to do your main thing, but you also have to learn how to promote yourself. So really good words today from author Rick Riordan. Hope you can take something from that into your week. And then finally, Dr. Barbara Bruce, Mayo Clinic doctor and expert in fibromyalgia. She says, if you're suffering from any disease, there are some important things you can do to make it better for you. Make sure you talk to people you love, tell them the latest research about it, and be open with them about the things that they can do to make you feel better. And make sure you're clear with them about how you want to be supported. So those are some really good tips from Dr. Barbara Bruce. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Mulberry Lane Show. Make sure you join us same time, same place next weekend. We're always waiting for next week. Can't be here soon enough. Bo, stay happy and stay blessed. Allie, don't forget to be awesome. Rachel, that's a wrap. Yeah.